the collapse of the family and the community. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the daily life of most humans ran its course within three ancient frames, the nuclear family, the extended family, and the local intimate community. Most people worked in the family business, the family farm or the family workshop, for example, or they worked in their neighbors' family businesses. The family was also the welfare system, the health system, the education system, the construction industry, the trade union, the pension fund, the insurance company, the radio, the television, the newspapers, the bank, and even the police. When a person fell sick, the family took care of her. When a person grew old, the family supported her. And her children were her pension fund. When a person died, the family took care of the orphans. If a person wanted to build a hut, the family lent a hand. If a person wanted to open a business, the family raised the necessary money. If a person wanted to marry, the family chose or at least vetted the prospective spouse. If the conf- if conflict arose with a neighbor, the family muscled in. But if a person's illness was too grave for the family to manage, or a new business demanded too large an investment, or the neighborhood quarrel escalated to the point of violence, the local community came to the rescue. The community offered help on the basis of local traditions and an economy of favors, which often differed greatly from the supply and demand laws of the free market. In an old-fashioned medieval community, when my neighbor was in need, I helped build his hut and guard his sheep without expecting any payment in return. When I was in need, my neighbor returned the favor. At the same time, the local potentate might have drafted all of us villagers to construct his castle without paying us a penny. In exchange, we counted on him to defend us against brigands and barbarians. Village life involved many transactions, but few payments. There were some markets, of course, but their roles were limited. You could buy rare spices, clothes, and tools, and hire the services of lawyers and doctors. Yet, less than 10% of commonly used products and services were brought in the market, or rather, bought in the market. Most human needs were taken care of by the family and the community. There were also kingdoms and empires that performed important tasks such as waging wars, building roads, and constructing palaces. For these purposes, kings raised taxes and occasionally enlisted soldiers and laborers. Yet with few exceptions, they tended to stay out of the daily affairs of families and communities. Even if they wanted to intervene, most kings could do so only with difficulty. Traditional agricultural economies had few surpluses 
with which to feed crowds of government officials, policemen, social workers, teachers, and doctors. Consequently, most rulers did not develop mass welfare systems, health care systems, or educational systems. They left such matters in the hands of families and communities. Even on rare occasions when rulers tried to intervene more intensively in the daily lives of the peasantry, as happened, for example, in the Qin Empire in China, they did so by converting family heads and community elders into government agents. Often enough, transportation and communication difficulties made it so difficult to intervene in the affairs of remote communities that many kingdoms preferred to, to cede even the most basic royal prerogatives, such as taxation and, viola- and violence, to communities. The Ottoman Empire, for instance, allowed family vendettas to mete out justice rather than supporting a large imperial police force. If my cousin killed somebody, the victim's brother might kill me in sanctioned revenge. The Sultan in Istanbul or even the provincial Pasha did not intervene in such clashes as long as violence remained within acceptable limits. In the Chinese Ming Empire, 1368-1644, the population was organized into the Baoya system. Ten families were grouped to form a jia, and ten jia constituted a bao. When a member of a bao committed a crime, other Bao members would be punished for it, in particular the Bao elders. Taxes, too, were levied on the Bao, and it was responsible, rather, it was responsibility of the Bao elders, rather than of the state officials, to assess the situation of each family and determine the amount of tax it should pay. From the empire's perspective, this system had a huge advantage. Instead of maintaining thousands of revenue officials and tax collectors who would have to monitor the earnings and expenses of every family, these tasks were left to the community leaders, rather elders. The elders knew how much each villager was worth, and they could usually enforce tax payments without involving the imperial army. Many kingdoms and empires were, in truth, little more than large protection rackets. The king was a capo de tutti cupi who collected protection money and in return made sure the neighboring crime, syndicates, and local small fry did not harm those under his protection. He did little else. Life in the bosom of, a f- of family and community was far from ideal. Families and communities could oppress their members no less brutally than do modern states and markets, and their internal dynamics were often fraught with tension and violence. Yet people had little choice. A person who lost her family and community around 1750 was as good as dead. She had no job, no education, and no support, 
in times of sickness and distress. Nobody would loan her money or defend her if she got into trouble. There were no policemen, no social workers, and no compulsory education. In order to survive, such a person quickly had to find an alternative family or community. Boys and girls who ran away from home could expect at best to become servants in some new family. At worst, they, there was the army or the brothel. All this changed dramatically over the last two centuries. The Industrial Revolution gave the market immense new powers, provided the state with new means of communication and transportation, and placed at the government's disposal an army of clerks, teachers, policemen, and social workers. At first, the market and the state discovered their path blocked by traditional families and communities who had little love for outside intervention. Parents and community elders were reluctant to let the younger generation be indoctrinated by a nationalist education system, conscripted into armies or turned into a rootless urban proletariat. Over time, states and markets used their growing power to weaken the traditional bonds of family and community. The state sent its policemen to stop family vendettas and replaced them with court decisions. The market sent its hawkers to wipe out long-standing local traditions and replaced them with ever-changing commercial fashions. Yet this was not enough. In order really to break the power of family and community, they needed to help the help of a fifth column. The state and the market approached people with an offer that could not be refused. Become individuals, they said. Marry whomever you desire, without asking permission from your parents. Take up whatever job suits you, even if community elders frown. Live wherever you wish, even if you cannot make it every week to the family dinner. You are no longer dependent on your family or your community. We, the state, and the market will take care of you instead. We will provide food, shelter, education, health, welfare, and employment. We will provide pensions, insurance, and protection. Romantic literature often presents the individual as somebody caught in a struggle against the state and the market. Nothing could be further from the truth. The state and the market are the mother and the father of the individual, and the individual can survive only thanks to them. The market provides us with work, insurance, and a pension. If we want to study a profession, the government schools are there to teach us. If we want to open a business, the bank loans us money. If we want to build a house, a construction company builds it and the bank gives us a mortgage, in some cases subsidized or insured by the state. If violence flares up, the police protects us. If we are sick for a few days, our health insurance takes care of us. If we are debilitated for months, National Social Services steps in. If we need around-the-clock assistance, we can go to the market and hire a nurse 
usually some stranger from the other side of the world who takes care of us with a kind of devotion that we no longer expect from our own children. If we have the means, we can spend our golden years at a senior citizen's home. The tax authorities treat us as individuals and do not expect us to pay the neighbors' taxes. The courts, too, see us as individuals and never punish us for the crimes of our cousins.